Welcome to Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics, where the conversation always gives you a foundation that is built on biblical principles, so you can intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, and the reality we live in, and history. Host Joe Gaona covers topics like apologetics, worldviews, contemporary culture, and the Word of God to help you articulate a defense for how you live your Christian life. See how you can get involved in support Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics by visiting ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com That's ThroughoutAllAgesMinistries.com Joe, where is that magnifying glass? How you doing today? This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics throughout all ages and we're here to look at worldviews and see if they make sense as we scrutinize them. We're going to look at my worldview and your worldview and we're going to test it with truth. We're going to look at history, science, archaeology, and philosophy. And as we weigh it in with the reality that we live in, does it make sense? Does your worldview Makes sense. Today will be a second part. We're talking about contradictions. As the critic would say, there are many contradictions in the Bible. So we're going to take a few of these and see if we can square these away. Our first contradiction that the critic would talk about is that triumphal entry where Jesus is sitting on a fowl, on a colt. Now, the critic would say that the verse in Matthew tells us that Jesus sat both on the donkey and the fowl at the same time. And how is that possible when um, John and Luke just say that Jesus sat on the colt? But Matthew, the wording is that he sat on both of them. So there's a contradiction there. Let's read this and see if we can straighten this out. So let's first start off with what John says, John uses a verse in the Old Testament that a prophecy that how this was going to take place. And it says this in John twelve fourteen and 15, Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it as it is written, do not fear daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. So it does mention a donkey and her colt. But it says that Jesus is just sitting on the colt here. This is John's prophecy of the Old Testament confirming this. But then when we get into Matthew, it kind of changes its tone a little bit here. And I want to read to you what it says here in Matthew 21, 7. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon. So... Right now, I'm not getting what they're saying, but if we go to like Matthew 21, 7 in the New American Standard, it says this, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them. And he sat on the cloaks, or he sat on them, literally, 
garments isn't there, cloaks on isn't there, and it actually says that Jesus sat on them. So what is them talking about? Let's read it again. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them. And he sat on them. The them is referring to the cloaks. He sat on the cloaks. He didn't sit on them, on the donkey and the colt. And to even straighten it out even further, we have testimony from the other two Gospels, John and Luke, that says otherwise. And it says there, even in the King James Version, that they sat him thereon. Thereon what? Thereon on the colt, where they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. Is not in any way building a concrete case that he sat on both beasts at the same time. You see, what happens is you can lay garments out on two couches, let's say, and you say, Mike sat on the garments. It doesn't imply that he laid on all the garments at the same time, like he had his legs stretched out on one couch and the other couch while he's trying to uh, cover both areas because he has to be true to the sentence that Mike sat on the garments. No, we, we know in English form or in any other form that you can lay out the garments on both animals and he sat on them. He sat on the garments, which in the other two uh, books of the Bible, we see that it is the colt that he sat on. It tells us in Luke, and they brought it to Jesus, the colt, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And even in the King James Version on Luke 19.35, it says, and they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the colt and they set Jesus thereon. So I think when they try to make this assumption that as they laid the cloaks on them and then Jesus sat on them, they're trying to make that refer to the, the beasts, the animals. At the same time, he wrote them both. But no, he, he sat on them, which is the cloaks. That's all it's referring to. The second contradiction that we want to talk about is when Paul mentions Jesus appeared to the twelve. We know that Judas Iscariot had already hung himself. And so it tells us on the verse in 1 Corinthians 15, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. It tells us that he appeared to the 12 and they say, hey, wait a minute, there's a contradiction there. We know there's only 11. They got it wrong. But I want you to see that they use that term, the 12, that he appeared then to the 12 as an office. Just as you would say, oh, the military came to our house last night. Or you would say the police well, how many are in the police? Well, it, it could determine on each each situation, right? But we need to take it in context. For instance, in Scripture, it says that Jesus sat down and called the twelve. Now, we're assuming there's twelve of them there. But we have to read to see if we get any context to it. And said unto them, if any man desires to be first, they shall be last of all. 
and a servant of all. And then we read in Matthew twenty six fourteen. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, I want you to see that he's using the the name twelve as an office. Then one, so we get some information, one of the twelve, the office, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest. And so when we get to John twenty nineteen and 20, if you read the first three verses, he mentions disciples, and then he mentions the twelve. And you would think before you get to the end that he was talking to all the disciples. Because listen, here's how it goes. Verse 19, John twenty nineteen. Now when it was evening on the first day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were together due to fear of the Jews. Now you would think the disciples would mean the twelve. That Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced. And you're going, oh, he must be talking about the twelve disciples. The disciples then rejoiced, talking about this office, when they saw the Lord. But then it goes on to say from 20, if you go to verse 24, four more verses down. But Thomas, one of the twelve who was called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So all of a sudden, it tells us out of the twelve, one of them wasn't there. So you can see it was used to talk about an office. I see no contradiction in that statement. And so in conclusion, when Paul said he appeared to the twelve, we know that Judas was already dead, and that Paul was using an office term with no contradictions. So on our third one, we're talking about the critics saying that the family of Jesus should have held him in some high regard because they were told. They, the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and tells him that Mary's child will, be, will save his people from their sins. In Luke, the angel tells Mary that her son will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High and will rule on David's throne forever. And a short time later, Mary tells Elizabeth that all generations will consider her Mary blessed because of the child that will be born to her. So if all this is true, why is it it tells us in Mark 3.20 that Mary and Joseph should have had the highest regard for their son. Instead, the family of Jesus tried to take custody of him because they thought he had lost his mind. And when the critic says lost his mind, they are talking about a looney tune, someone who has mental ill problems. And I think they over-exaggerate what is really going on. And so you need to remember this. This was the very beginning stages of Jesus. And although he lived there for 30 years, they were barely beginning to see now the miracles he's performing. He's casted out devils. He's casted out demons. He's healing people left and right. He's talking more to the religious rulers. And the crowds are now just beginning to know of his miracles, his power, and his authority. And they come to his house, where usually it's just him and his family. People were coming in and wanting to get healed. 
people wanting to know answers about what's going on. The religious rulers were there trying to hold him accountable and trying to make him seem like, oh, you have the Satan in you, you have Beelzebub in you. And so you can imagine the circus it would look like if you were from the outside looking in when the place there was nowhere that his mom and his brother could get into their own house to talk to Jesus, let alone to eat. And so this is what we're talking about when we're talking about, was he a looney tune? No, I don't think that's what the verse says at all. If we read the verse, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, so they heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind or out of his senses. And so I want you to know that they are, the critic is saying that they should have held Jesus in high regard during this time. But people are people, right? I mean, Jesus actually gives a parable about God sending prophets that were to be held at high regard. And they actually killed them. And he sent more and they killed them. And the parable goes on to say that he sent his son, which is Jesus, and they're going to kill him too. But we'll talk more about this in the second part of Throughout All Ages, 1530 Apologetics. Come back and we'll see you on the second half. Don't go away because there is much more to come with Throughout All Ages, 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise. Throughout All Ages Ministry, 1530 Apologetics goes into the public high school to build up the students' character to intellectually think about their worldview and weigh it with truth. Studies show 75 to 85 percent of all college students who grew up in a Christian home are walking away from their faith. For more information about 1530 Apologetics, go to throughoutallages.com. Welcome back to Throughout All Ages, 1530 Apologetics. And now, here's your host, Joe Gaona, on K-Praise. Thanks for being part of the second half. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics, Throughout All Ages. And we are talking about contradictions. In Mark 3.20, it says that he went home. Jesus, the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind or out of his senses. Well, first of all, talking about they should have known. We know in a parable, Jesus actually talks about this. He talks about God sending these prophets that should be held in high regard. I mean, they're speaking for God. And yet we find time and time again in the Old Testament that they would not believe the prophets of God because they wanted to live their own lives or they didn't want to think about it. Or for many other reasons, they ended up just killing them or not wanting to listen to them. Here's the parable, Matthew twenty-one thirty-three. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard. And he set a hedge around it. So this is talking about God setting a vineyard, a place for Israel. And he dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers, 
which is Israel, and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, so it came down to harvest, he sent his servants to the vine dressers, which are the prophets, that they might receive its fruits. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, when the religious rulers saw his son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Jesus even talked about this, and he knew about this. We are told in the Old Testament, after seeing all the miracles that God had did and that Moses had performed under God, that they were still in unbelief. We know that Jesus had said, I tell you the truth, that if I were to raise the dead in front of people, they still would not believe. And does that somehow mean that God was somehow not God? Not at all. To assume how people, family, or friends should act is a fallacious argument. You cannot say, oh, they shouldn't have acted that way. Even Paul was accused of not being an apostle by the people in the church and they're all doing this inside his house and so his family is coming up and says what is going on is he beside himself has he lost his mind only two times we find in the bible this word is used and it's used once talking about jesus here and it's it's used another time in the context of paul talking about he has lost his mind for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And this is the verse, Second Corinthians 5.11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people, but we are well known to God. And I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. For if we have lost our minds, that's the word, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. So this illusion uh, that Paul is using, he's saying, if I have lost my mind, I think we say that more than often when someone says, what are you doing? You're looking like a crazy man. Hey, if I have lost my mind, then so be it, because I know this is true. This is what we're talking about. And so no, no contradiction to this. This is the meaning. The zeal of Jesus has caused his closest family to be amazed and dumbfounded. They reported to Jesus. So even after this, while the crowds were in there, they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are out there seeking you. And he says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? For whoever does the will of God, this is my brother and sister and mother. And so we can see the context of this, that he wasn't uh, a loony tune or a lunatic or mentally ill. On the next contradiction, we read in Samuel 23, 8 and 1 Chronicles eleven eleven, how many men did the chief of David's captains kill, right? So we have one story in Samuel 23, 8 says he killed 800, but First Chronicles 11, 11 says he killed 300. So 
What's going on with this contradiction? So let's read the verses. First Corinthians, First Chronicles 11.10 says, Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord. This is an account of David's mighty men. Joshua Bean was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. And then we read in Second Samuel 23.8, and the critic would think that it was supposed to be read the same as First Chronicles 11.10, right? So Second Samuel 23.8 says this, These are the names of the mighty men who David had. Josh, Joshabeb, which Joshabeb is Joshobim, right? Joshabeb, chief of the captains, he was called Adino, the Ezanite, because of 800 who were killed by him at one time. Now, here's the confusion. In Second Samuel, they have the word spear in it. But we know that that word spear, if you look it up, the word spear isn't even there. It's not even in the manuscripts. Whoever put that in assumed that they need more context. So they assumed that it was supposed to be talking about spears. But we know that there's a word for spears. As a matter of fact, First Chronicles 11.10, when he goes up against the 300 men, that word spear is there. And it's used 45 times in the Bible when it's talking about the spear. But here in 2 Samuel 23, 8, it's not used at all. It actually just says that he killed 800 men. So there is no contradiction. On one, he killed 800 men. And on the subset number, he killed 300 with a spear. And so we don't see any contradiction when we see that. Another contradiction the critic would bring is in Genesis 12.4 and Acts 7.2. How old was Abraham when he left Haran? Now we know in Genesis 12.4, it just comes out and says it. It says, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. So we know that Abraham started in Ur, went to Haran with his father, and then from there he goes to the promised land, Canaan. Well, here in Genesis 12:4 it says that he was 75 years old. But then the critic would say in Acts 7:4, this is what it says. It says, "Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, that's uh, Abraham with his family." He came out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. That's a kind of confusing sentence there. It says, and from there, when his father was dead, he, Abraham, moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Now the critic will say that God moved Abraham to Canaan after Terran, his father, had died. But we know this isn't the case. Why? Because we can look and see how old Abraham was when he had Ishmael. He was 86 years old when Hagar born Ishmael. 
We also know Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abraham had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So if he's around 86 years old, that would be fine. So we know that Terah, it tells us in Genesis 11:26, it says, And Terah lived 70 years, and he begot Abraham. So at 70 years old, he had Abraham. And the days of Terah were 205 years. So if we minus 70 from 205 years, that means Abraham was 135 years old when he left uh, Haran. And that doesn't fit at all. But if we take the only verse that actually says how old Abraham was, then it makes sense that Abraham departed when he was 75 years old from Haran. Quran. And when you get into Acts 74, it's not talking about God moving Abraham to Canaan. It's actually saying, and it says this, And he, Abraham, came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, from Haran, when his father was dead, Abraham moved his father to this land, the Canaan land, in which you now dwell. So, Abraham was already dwelling in the land of promise. And it was when Terran had died, he went and grabbed the body and brought it over. And so there's a quick fix to this. If you look at the verses and the numbers, Genesis 12:4 is the only verse that mentions how old Abraham was when he left Terran. Another contradiction. We find that the critic will say on Jude... 14, that it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesies. And so the critic will say, because it says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, that you should count after Adam. So we know that when we talk about the count, count the sons, you have Adam. Adam has Seth. Seth has Enosh. Enosh has Canaan. And Canaan has Mahalali, and Mahalali has Jared, and Jared has Enoch. Well, if you're going to leave Adam out, then yeah, you only have six generations. But that's not how you read it. When it says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, well, we start on Adam. This is Joe with 1530 Apologetics. We'll see you next week. That's a take, and this has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics. You can learn more about your host, Joe Gaona, how to support and get involved with 1530 Apologetics by visiting throughoutallagesministries.com. That's throughoutallagesministries.com. 1530 Apologetics is vigorously setting the pace to give easy answers to hard questions in the culture we live in. So be sure to join Joe at this same time next week for more biblical principles to help you intellectually and critically learn to weigh out decisions about life with truth, facts, contradictions, the reality we live in, and history. This has been Throughout All Ages 1530 Apologetics on K-Praise.